This week, we're in week 11 of a series called The Whole Story. The whole story is is trying to tell the story of the Bible as a unified story from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And this morning, we're going to be bringing um, the, the Old Testament portion of the story to a close. And this is our anchoring text in this morning's message. It's going to be a, a bit of a background text. It's, it's Isaiah 65, verse 17. And this is what God's word says. God speaking through Isaiah, behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. This is the word of the Lord, and you say, praise be to God. We're, we're, we're really clumsy at that, but we finally figured out what we're going to do, all right? We say, this is the word of the Lord. You say, praise there it is. Thank you. Louis Zamperini, who has heard of Louis Zamperini? handful of us have heard of, of Louis Zamperini. He um, was a World War II veteran. He passed away in 2014. Um, but Louis Zamperini, he's, he's got a remarkable story, and it was told by author Laura Hildebrand in a book called Unbroken. And then later, it was a movie was created of his life, uh, directed by Angelina Jolie of the same uh, title, Unbroken. He's got this extraordinary life. Um, his life, as you follow along, it started out with all kinds of promise. But one of the things about his story that's so compelling is that the bottom seemed to fall out over and over and over and over again. It's like you don't think that things can get any worse for him, and then they get worse again. Uh, he actually figured out that he was pretty quick. He was a good runner. He was running from the cops in New York as a, as a youth. He'd go and steal stuff or get into trouble, and the cops would chase him, and he'd take off, and they couldn't catch him. So finally, an older brother started to harness some of, of that, and he uh, came under some coaches, and they began to train him, and he was fast. He qualified for the 1936 Olympics and actually ran in the 1936 Olympics. Um, and then he was drafted into the war. He enlisted in the war into the Air Force. He became a bombardier in, in, the, Uf in the Air Force, and he was actually shot down over open water, and he and a handful of his buddies survived, and they, they were adrift at sea for 47 days. Pretty wild. They lost one of their, uh, one of their fellow countrymen in one of those rafts um, in the process. He succumbed to the elements, and uh, at one point, they saw a plane, and the plane saw them, and the plane turned around and took a look at them, and it was actually a Japanese plane, and the gunners actually tried to take them out in the rafts. These guys bailed. It, it, the bullets um, deflated these rafts, and they climbed back on. The plane came around for a second pass, went at them again. They survived that. They climbed back into the rafts. They got nothing but time on their hands and a patch kit, so they patched them up. They were, uh, they, they were harassed by sharks um, while they were in, in, in the waters, too. Um, the, he, he was, uh, finally, they were, they were rescued from being adrift at sea by a Japanese freighter, but then they were turned into the Japanese, and then they became prisoners of war. And so for a period of war and multiple um, POW camps, Zamperini survived brutal torture uh, where a guy, one of the wardens of this POW camp that they had nicknamed the bird, uh, he, uh, he tortured, he just had it out for Louis Zamperini and he just went after him over and over and over again, abused and tortured him. Louis survived, uh, the Allies won, and um, 
and, and he ended up uh, coming back to civilian life, got married. Um, but he, because of his PTSD, he turned to alcohol for a, a long period of years and almost wrecked his marriage and his life. And then um, Billy Graham was coming through town and his wife became a follower of Jesus. And Louis uh, went to one of these revival meetings, one of these big kind of tent meetings with Billy Graham, heard the gospel and came to know Jesus Christ. And it's just a wonderful, wild story. Um, the story of Israel and of humanity in many ways parallels Zamperini's story. The bottom just continues to fall out over and over and over again. Things start pretty good, actually. But by chapters 3 and 4, that bottom falls out. Humans rebel against God. They, uh, they abandoned God. God in order to follow uh, his enemy, the serpent. And by chapter four, family members, brothers, or a brother kills his other brother. So things are not good. And then the scriptures are the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which is going to fulfill him and, and, and satisfy him. A guy named Chris Bruno, he says this. He says, after the fall, it looked like the defeat of the serpent might be around the corner with Abraham. But then Abraham's family, family ended up in slavery in Egypt. And after the exodus from Egypt, God gave the people the law covenant, but they immediately broke it. And when God put David on the throne, he and his sons sinned against God and failed to keep the covenant. And on and on and on it went. So the family, the promise is given to Eve that her offspring will crush the head of this serpent who has gone to war with God and deceived humans. And they're looking for this offspring to come right around the corner and the offspring seems to come but doesn't, seems to come but doesn't, seems to come but doesn't, on and on it goes. But here's what, the, what is going on in all of Scripture, not just in the Genesis account, but in all of Scripture too. In the midst, we see an active God who is there. He's present in the story of humanity. He's directing humanity and he is protecting humanity. He's weaving all of this tragic story into something exceedingly good. And what we come to see as we fast forward all the way to the life of Jesus Christ and, and then forward in the writings of the apostles, we recognize that God himself would become the solution to our problem. He himself would become the solution to sin and death. We can't stay loyal, so God himself would intervene into the story in order to stay loyal in our place. And because his loyalty and his righteousness broke the curse of our sin, he then would be free to extend to us his righteousness on the basis of our belief in him, on the basis of our faith in him. And he would go even further than that. He would take up residence inside of us through his spirit. The scriptures say the Holy Spirit and begin remaking us, you and I, into what we were originally created to be. But remaking you and I is actually not the complete picture of all that God would be remaking. Things have gone wrong with us, yes, but also with all of creation. I'm fast-forwarding in the story. I'm, I'm post-Jesus, post-resurrection here. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome, about 57 AD. And this is what he says in Romans chapter 8, verses, verse 18. He's, he's trying to encourage them. They're suffering. And he says, yet what we suffer now is nothing to be compared or is nothing compared to the glory that he, God, will reveal to us later. So it's going to take a little while longer. 
He says, for all creation, all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Listen to this. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. Back to Adam and Eve in the garden. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from something. From what? From death and from decay. And then he writes and concludes, for we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time at which he was writing. For those who are jumping in with us new this morning, we've been using a literary device. We just call it the story so far. And and we're using this literary device to teach this progressive history of how God has created and is caring for his humanity. And so this is the point at which we are. This is the catch-up and the current where we are this morning of the story. This is the story so far. You can see it on the screen. God created a kingdom, and he is the king. But he made human beings to represent him in that kingdom. And Adam and Eve rejected that call, which led to something. It led to sin and death. But God promised to defeat the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve through the seed or the offspring of the woman, who is also the offspring of Abraham or seed of Abraham. Through Abraham's family, God gave a promise, a covenant, and specifically Judah's royal seed, David. So Abraham, his great-grandson Judah, then a handful of generations to David. These covenant blessings would come to the world. Because all people were guilty and deserved death, the sacrifices of the Mosaic law revealed more clearly their need for a substitute. And the substitute would be a suffering servant. Trevor taught on this two weeks ago in Isaiah. Through the servant and the work of the Holy Spirit, God would establish a new covenant and give lasting life to his people. That's where we ended two weeks ago. In the new heavens and the new earth. That's where we are this morning. The new heavens and the new earth. So this morning we're talking about the new creation. We're looking forward. We're getting a foreshadowing of it, but we're not, we're not going to say all that can be said about the new earth and the new creation this morning. That's actually going to come at the end of the series in a few more weeks. But we're going to start to tease it and, and fill it out um, here. Two weeks ago, Trevor introduced us to this eccentric Old Testament prophet a guy named Ezekiel. Uh, If you read Ezekiel's writings in the Old Testament, they can be pretty confusing. There's a lot of imagery, a lot of poetry, a lot of speaking out of the future. And he was just a pretty strange dude overall. Like just some of the things that God asked him to do and then he actually did are a bit mind-blowing. I'm not going to get into that. God used Ezekiel, though, to trans... uh, He used him to foreshadow this internal transformation that would come in humanity, that God would do in his people. And this internal transformation would actually culminate in something. It would culminate in what we celebrated last weekend, Easter. It would culminate in bodily, physical resurrection. So humans would experience a remaking. We would be remade, renewed at a heart level... But let's not just stop there in our thinking and dreaming and imaginations. Also, we will be remade at a bodily level. Your body, my body. This week, we're going to continue looking at this theme of of, uh, transformation of the heart, but also of the body 
and building on it because of the Bible does. So we're going to consider new creation as a whole. Um, now, it might be redundant to say this, but I'm going to say it anyways. In Christ, we are new creations. He's done something profound in our hearts, in our minds, um, through our ways. But there's promise in the scriptures, and it's not a small one either, that there's another kind of transformation that is coming. All of the earth is going to be renewed. The earth. Your feet are on it right now. It's going to be renewed. You woke up in it. Maybe you've even recently just seen some views that have blown your mind or been in an airplane over the oceans or over land and landscapes. That, all of that, all of what you picture is going to be remade and renewed. All together, a new creation is coming. That's the promise of the Bible. So all of life renewed by God. About eight years ago, I bought a, a table off of Craigslist. It's this solid oak table. I got it for a hundred bucks. It was a steal of a deal. It had these solid oak chairs that were a pain in the butt and I didn't want to refinish those. But what I ended up doing, it was this like honey oak color, you know, the nineties called and they want their, like their wood back. It's this honey oak color. It doesn't match anything in our house at the time. So I take it out into the garage and I, I, I strip the lacquer off of it, which is not easy. If you've done that on like commercial tables, strip the lacquer down, sanded all the way through the stain to the wood, got rid of the grooves, got rid of a bunch of the scratches and and then painted the legs. You can see them on the screen, white, and then the top is kind of just a, a darker walnut color. This, is a, this table has been great for us. We've used it uh, for the last eight years or so. It's been a central place of conversation in our home and, and, and shared meals. I rarely think of the way that that table formerly looked. I just don't think about the way it used to look because I'm happy with the way it looks and the way that it functions now. Same table, totally renewed. Here's something really important. In our Bibles, they speak often of a new heavens or a, a renewed heavens and a renewed earth, a new earth. So our anchor text this morning is Isaiah 65, 17. I'm going to read it again just to orient us, but I'm going to take us on a, a quick tour of a total of four verses here. Isaiah 65, 17. Behold, God says, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Remember that, the former things. Remember that language. Then, this is the second to last chapter in Isaiah. Then in Isaiah chapter 66, he closes the book. He's repeating himself, which should clue us in at the readers that he's trying to say something. The author here wants us to realize and to, and to hear his repetition. He says this, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make, so this is God speaking through Isaiah, as these new heavens and new earth that I make shall remain before me. So the language here is they're not going away. There's nothing that's going to happen to them so shall your offspring, people of Israel, he's speaking this to Isaiah as they're about to go into exile, so shall my people and their name remain. So the new heavens, the new earth isn't going away, and neither are you, my people. It's all going to remain. 
Now, we're gonna fast forward from Isaiah. The Babylon will come in and wreck the Israelites and take them, carry a bunch of them off, leave some of them in Jerusalem, and the nation will come back and repopulate Jerusalem, and it'll be crazy, and it'll take place over the course of about 700 years. And then Jesus arrives on the scene and lives and calls disciples to himself and dies at the hands of the Jews and the Romans and rises, praise be to God, on the third day, bodily ascends to be with the Father and the church is born. He commissions the church. And now a guy named Peter is leading the church. And this is what Peter writes to some people who are suffering and it gets a little bit crazy. But the day of the Lord, he says, will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Notice this language about the earth. They'll be exposed or they'll be found out or they'll be realized. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people, if they're gonna pass away, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So he's saying live in a way that isn't going to pass away here. You're waiting for and you're hastening the coming day of God, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. I don't know exactly, I don't know what's all going on in that language. It's confusing and it causes us to want to go on a search. I would say you should do that. He says, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, exclamation point. But Here's the main point of what Peter is trying to get across to the church. According to his promise, he's reaching back into Isaiah, which we just read. We are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All right. There's another apostle, a guy named John, and he raises Peter's bet here. He says, then I saw a new heaven. This is at the end of our Bibles in Revelation 21. Then I saw, he's having some visions. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. So this is God speaking here or someone who is representing him, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things, there it is, have passed away. There's a lot there, causes some questions in us, but I want to ask you this question. Do you notice how Revelation ends? Do you notice how the end of the age ends? It doesn't end with a soul airlift to heaven. The new city comes down, and the dwelling place of God is with man speaking of the physical world, our earth. So in, in the same way that the gospel is bringing healing and transformation to us, the scriptures are also setting up that transformation and healing is coming to our physical world too. In order to be fiercely loyal to the scriptures, we, we need to rethink our pop concept of heaven. We've got a popular level cultural concept of heaven 
And it's actually like pretty far off. The view, this view of heaven as a disembodied kind of immaterial place up in the sky was not in the minds of the Jews before Christ and not in the minds of first century Christians. It's certainly not like it is in our minds today. Um, in the Middle Ages, some artists and, and writers like Dante and others started to kind of like distort this view of what heaven and what God's dwelling with man would be like. And they started to create these works of art that got um, just passed out and distributed among all kinds of people. And it started to reshape how Westerners in particular started to view heaven. That's where we started to get these chubby ba baby angels on clouds with bows. And, and like we started to get all of these things in in our minds through these works of art and, 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 and these artists. But as it spread, uh, a Bible-centered or biblical view of what heaven is, we became more and more detached. Like their, their view of heaven became more and more detached from what the scriptures actually represent. Um, a theologian, an Anglican named N.T. Wright, he asserts, and I think he's accurate here, that a, a, a Modern majority Christian view of salvation means that Jesus is going to come and he's going to, he's going to save us from our past, present, and future sins. Yes and amen. And then he's going to carry us off somewhere. He's going to take us away. It's going to be like left behind. You know, everybody is like, you know, the buses are crashing because the bus drivers have gone to be with Jesus. And, and, and there, there is like, there, there is some, uh, we do have to do some work of, of like, uh, what what happens before Jesus comes back and recreates the world and, and the great tribulation? There is some theological work to be done there, and that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is the the earth and the and heaven's ultimate end and our ultimate dwelling with God. What will be what will that be like? This is what N.T. Wright says. He says in classic Judaism and first century Christianity, believers expected this world would be transformed into God's kingdom, a restored Eden. Notice that language, a restored Eden where redeemed human beings would be liberated from death, from illness, from sin, and other corruptions. So I, I, I want to just invite you to think about this for a second and let it rewrite your concept of eternity with God. When you view eternity with God, what are you seeing? One author says the end times are not the end of the world. They're the beginning of the real world in biblical understanding. Eschatology is something that we don't talk about a lot at all of life. Eschaton means last things. Eschatology is the study of last things. Um, we probably should do some more talking about eschatology. And in fact, we, we will, I know for sure, in February of 2023, I'm going to start preaching a series on Daniel. I've been doing just a bunch of pre-work lately on, on Daniel and the Old Testament. It's a fascinating book. The first, three, first six chapters are narrative telling the story of Daniel and his his guy friends. And then the, the latter half of Daniel, he starts to talk about these coming kingdoms, these beastly kingdoms and the end of the age and also what's going to come. And it's full of like imagery and 
prophetic, um, just prophetic writing. And it it's, can be hard to understand, but it's actually like when you dig in, it can a- absolutely be understood. So we are going to talk about eschatology in, in the coming months. But when people in North Idaho, <laughs> I'm picking on us, I'm from here, I can, talk about the end times, what they typically are talking about or thinking about is how bad things are getting on the earth. And it must be the end times because everything's going crazy and, and, and the world seems really, really dark right now. They'll say something like, if they're followers of Jesus, they'll say something like, I can't wait to be with Jesus. Or they have this idea in the mind, I think a majority representation of kind of being carted off or, or carried off. Um, this idea being that come, Lord Jesus, come, as is said three times in Revelation 22, implies that Jesus is going to come and airlift us out of here and off to heaven. So I want to ask you a question again. What do you believe about heaven? Do you know what you believe about the reality of heaven? Do you picture heaven? Do you picture life with God forever? Do you picture it as being a sort of immaterial spirit realm Do you picture yourself being embodied? Do you picture yourself living in the sky? Do you picture your feet on real earth and real soil? Like, do you do you not really think about it a lot? You just kind of it's confusing and it's a little bit gray for me. So I just don't even really think about it. I'm I'm planted in the here and now for the most part. Maybe you're so Jesusy that you're you're thinking to yourself, wherever Jesus is, that's where I want to be. Congratulations. I think that's probably a good like posture to have, but we should think about heaven. We should think about this reality. We should ground our thinking in the reality of what the scriptures are teaching. Uh, heaven can be a really vague concept for a lot of us these days. And the guys at the Bible Project, men and women at the Bible Project, they've, gone, they've done a really good job at, at explaining the relationship between heaven and earth as the Bible presents it. And so if you've not seen the Bible Project videos, I want you to check out this video. It's about six minutes long on heaven and earth. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature. But here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die. But this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world 
apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible was all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and... They kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. 
the focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. As cute as that is, it's really helpful, isn't it? It's helpful to think about, okay, what is, what, what is God doing with this heaven and earth thing? What is this new city in, in this new Jerusalem that's coming down to earth? What does, what does God have in mind for us for the rest of our days? Now, going back to Isaiah 65, 17, this anchor verse for this morning, God says through Isaiah, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into their mind. Um, a theologian named Alec Motyer, he says this, everything the Lord created at the beginning will be made new at the end. So this idea, when, he's, when Isaiah here is speaking, when God through Isaiah is speaking of the former things, it's picking up this idea of a past, right? The former things in the past, but the conception, the concept here is now even more grand. Not only its sorrows, but everything in the old order. So the things that are dimmed and diminished by the infection of human sin will undergo this great renewal that is to come. When God says not be remembered here, he's speaking of the minds of the redeemed, the renewed participants in this new creation. We will not really remember these things. Awareness then will be of total newness in which nothing prompts a recollection of what was. The new creation will be observed and enjoyed by new fresh minds. And all of this is the work of God. So he says, I will create new heavens and a new earth. This work of such greatness and newness that no other agent could account for it. It's going to be eternal, which means forever and without anything to disturb its joy. So as we have traveled through the history of the Old Testament over the last 11 weeks, and it's been really truncated and really quick, we're ending on this note of resurrection and new creation. And so at this point in the story in the Old Testament for Hebrews, for those who Isaiah was writing to or other prophets were writing to, it's still vague. It's still unrealized. What is this new creation, this new earth going to be like? Yet it's being foretold through them and it's being longed for in the imaginations of the Hebrews. And so we have in this series so far gone fast and we've seen whispers of the offspring of this woman who is the seed, uh, this offspring who will be the seed of the woman and the seed of Abraham and the seed of Judah and the seed of David. And we see that all of creation, man and beast, earth and sea, it's all been groaning for this head of the serpent to be crushed by the offspring, for God to come through forcefully on his promises. Chris Bruno writes this. He says, Although sin and death kept rearing their ugly heads, the prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the rest of the prophets revealed that God would finally and fully defeat sin and death through a suffering servant. We saw that in the video who would represent his people. And then and only then would he renew and restore all of creation. 
Would he live among his people forever and bring lasting joy and peace? End quote. Now, fortunately for us, we know the servant's name. He has a real zip code. His name is Jesus, the Messiah, Son of God of Nazareth. And there's great power in his name. He's present and he's working in his people. We saw evidence of this, just like physical, tangible evidence of this just last weekend as people are going under the waters of baptism and and showing how they have been internally raised to new life. So God is present and he is working. He is directing. He is renewing, not just those who got baptized last weekend, but he's renewing all of his people moment by moment and day by day. What we're learning as a church community is that God changes lives. The Spirit of God, through the Son of God, by the will of our Father God, He changes hearts. He changes the lives of all of those who call on Him. He has changed my life. Shared some of that story last weekend. He is changing and has changed your life. And He changed Louis Zamperini's life as well. Possibly the the most powerful part of Louis Zamperini's story is how because of his relationship with Jesus Christ, near the end of his life, he sought out this POW camp warden who was so cruel to him, a guy named, uh, his name is Mutsuhiro Watanabe. They nicknamed him the bird. He sought out this guy in order to forgive him, and he traveled all the way to Japan, but the bird would not see Louis. And so Louis did the, the very next best thing that he could possibly do. He wrote him a letter offering him in concrete terms that he was forgiven. It's not known if the bird ever read it. We just don't know. But what we do know is that Louis Zamperini was remade. His earthly body died in 2014, and he is now united to Jesus Christ in bliss, awaiting the new creation. He's awaiting bodily resurrection. It will be his. It will be ours. And we will have an opportunity together as God's people to know one another, to have friendships with one another, to be in the presence of Christ, ruled by him, loving him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves on a completely renewed earth. Amen. So much hope in the gospel. So much hope in the scriptures. There's one thing that I just want to ask of you is by way of application, and here's where, where we'll end. One thing, just one thing. I, w- I would like, if you're willing, for you to read the first two chapters of your Bible and to read the last two chapters of your Bible. Maybe grab a scratch piece of paper or a notebook in front of you or type in some notes on your phone, but I want you to notice and to note the parallels. What are, what, are, um, what are you seeing in the first two chapters of the scriptures and the last two chapters of the scriptures that go together? You'll see things like people. You'll see, just to clue you in, you'll see their relationships with one another. You'll see clues about their relationships with God. You'll see things like trees. You'll hear of things like gold and jewels and silver. You'll hear of water. You'll hear of progress, this cultural mandate of, of, of multiplying or of subduing the earth and cultivating 
cultivating the earth. And so this is what I want, that outcome. As you set your minds on the first two chapters of the scriptures and the last two chapters, I want you to be open if you, as much as you're able um, to let the Spirit of God rewrite your concept of heaven and solidify what it is that you are hoping in as you are guaranteed to spend all of eternity forever with him. What's it gonna be like? One last thing. Because the spirit of God is in you, you have a sanctified imagination. A sanctified imagination can dream of what might be with some level of potential accuracy. I'm not talking about us prophesying and saying, this is the way it's going to be. But what I'm asking you to do is to dream and to imagine. The Apostle Paul encourages the church. He says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of the wonders that God has prepared for those who love him. What do you love about the earth that he's created? What do you love about the way people are? Let your sanctified imagination loose and dream of what God has prepared for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for this promise. Our minds can't even get a grip on it. It's wonderful. As we are engaging the scriptures this week, would you, and engaging one another in conversation, would you, would you shape our view of you? A good, good father who has incredible things in view for his people. A good, good Messiah, who is our older brother, redeemer, sanctifier, savior, and Lord. And Jesus, you are directing us through your spirit who is present with us. We thank you that you are the God who is with us, not the God who is distant. Whether we believe you're distant or not does not change the reality that you are here with your people. So help us see you working. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.